Let's continue in our worship by giving attention to God's word this morning. This is from Judges, the fifth chapter, verses 12 and 13. God's word to you today. Wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up, wake up. And sing a song. Arise, Barak. Lead your captives away, son of Abinoam. Down to Tabor marched the few against the nobles. The people of the Lord marched against the mighty warriors. God's word to you today. You can be seated. Good morning. Great to have each of you here today. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at New City. And we are in a journey through the book of Judges. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Judges. If you don't know where that is, just start in Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, and start turning right, and you're going to bump into the book of, of Judges. And we're walking through this together as a church. We've got a reading guide and some discussion guides to help you go further. And I want to encourage you to read ahead and, and dig into God's Word together with your family as we journey through this incredible book. We find ourselves in Judges, the fourth and fifth chapters today. So if you, again, have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and make your way there to Judges chapter four. And while you're turning there, uh, just to give an introduction, uh, to say that Judges chapter four and five are interesting would be an understatement. Uh, the whole book is very interesting and uh, four and five, uh, they do not disappoint. Uh, but to say uh, also, just in context, that chapters four and five are covering the same event. So when you get there, or if you're on your phone, you're looking at it, um, even though they're, in, they're you know, numbered four and five, they're covering the same historical event from two different vantage points or perspectives. So chapter four is history. So it's giving historical narrative. Um, our narrator, most likely the, the, the prophet and judge Samuel, is capturing this story with historical details, and we'll get into that in just a few moments. But when we get to chapter five, you would think that you've advanced ahead to a different story, but it's actually the same story that's covered in chapter four, but from a different vantage point. You know, uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, understandings of narrative is uh, that narrative or story is like a beach ball. And if you turn the beach ball, you just see it from different perspective. It's the same beach ball, but as you turn it, you might see a different stripe or different color. And that's true for your own story. You've got to turn it and look from different perspectives. And so that's what's happening here. And when you get to chapter five, it's poetry. So it's the same story, but it's written from, in a different genre, from a different vantage point, spinning the beach ball and looking at it from a different perspective. And both are really important because historical narrative, chapter four, is really getting to our knowledge, our head, our understanding of what actually happened, and that's really important. But then chapter five is the heart. You know, poetry gets to the heart and answers the question, you know, why did it, why did it happen? And we're going to talk about both of those today. And just to say, if you've been following along in our study, we've talked about how the book of Judges in many ways mirrors the creation narrative from the book of Genesis. Remember, there are six major judge cycles or narratives. We're going to be in the third one today. And we see that every single judge cycle that we go through, every time around the ride, uh, Israel becomes less and less of who they were created to be. 
And so when we look at the creation narrative in Genesis 1 through 3, uh, 1 and 2 specifically, we see six creative days that God made the world. And on the seventh, seventh day, he rests and, and calls it holy as a Sabbath. And all of creation rests under the Sabbath king, right? And so in Judges, we see six major judge cycles. And every single time around the ride, Israel is becoming less and less of who God made them to be. And so in that way, it is the uncreation of God's people. And again, we're in the third cycle today. But in the same way, uh, Genesis 1 starts with poetry. Genesis 2 uh, is historical narrative. And now again, uh, the narrator is mirroring Genesis in that Genesis 4 is historical narrative, or uh, Judges 4 is historical narrative. Judges 5 is poetry. Just an interesting thing. And so again, we're jumping into the third major judge cycle, if you're taking notes, and we're going to be introduced uh, to our judge today, who is Deborah. And Deborah has a counterpart who is her warrior, her battlefield commander, and his name is, is Barak. And we'll be introduced to both of them in Judges 4 and 5. But let's get back into on the ride, if you will. And how do we get back on the ride with the people of Israel? After peace in the land, what do they do? Typically, they forget the Lord. And we learned last week that forgetting isn't that they don't remember any of the, the knowledge or understanding or the experience of the Lord. It's that they, to forget the Lord... Uh, a Hebrew understanding of that was to not act in the way that you know to act. So in other words, uh, forgetting is not that you don't remember anything. It's not acting upon what you do remember. And this is what happens for us. I think you would agree when we uh, wander away from the Lord. It's not that we forget all the things about God. We, we cease to act in a way uh, that we know the Lord to be and how we've experienced him. And so look at Judges 4, verse 1, as we kind of hop into this third major judge cycle. Uh, here we go again. After Ehud's death, uh, our judge last week, uh, Othniel and Ehud, Ehud dies, and the Israelites again do evil in the sight of the Lord. And they do that because they forget who God is and they begin to act um, in a way that's not congruent with who they know God to be. Um, I love history. How many of you love history? I love history. Uh, David McCullough was, was one of my favorite authors who, who passed away last year, um, wrote about all kinds of in, incredible things. Uh, my favorite biography, if you're a David McCullough fan, was on Truman. Um, but pack a lunch because it's about 900 pages. And uh, I didn't know a whole lot about Harry S. Truman, the 33rd president of the United States. Um, but as I began to read Truman, I just fell in love you know, with him and his story. He grew up in poverty. He was the only modern day president who never went to college. Um, he had an insatiable appetite to learn. He grew up in a little town, Independence, Missouri. Some of you might be uh, from the Midwest. He grew up in a, a little small town. And the story goes that Truman would go to the local library and read every single day. And one day he went to the, uh, the, the librarian there in Independence, Missouri, and asked her to order more books. And she said, we don't have the budget to order more books. And he said, well, I've already read every book in the library. Um, I need you to order more books. And she said, we don't have the money. We can't do it. And so he reread every single book in the library. Uh, that was the kind of guy that he was. He found himself... Um, you know, in the seat of vice president to FDR, and FDR dies suddenly. FDR was in a third term. He was allowed to, um, to run again because of the war, and FDR dies suddenly, and Truman becomes president, and nobody expected that. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the least of, uh, you know, persons who expected was Truman himself. He was having lunch 
the story goes, at the Capitol building and is whisked away to the White House and told in the White House that FDR was dead. And he's sworn in that day, and then that night, he's briefed on this secret project that had been going on called the Manhattan Project that FDR never told him about. And so uh, the weight of the world is on this guy's shoulders. Um, He never knew about the project. He ends up having to make a horrible decision um, to use the Manhattan Project, the, the, the atomic weaponry that the United States had been developing to end the war. And then he's charged with rebuilding Europe. And so uh, one of his um, uh, generals who joined his administration, George Marshall, uh, constructed this incredible plan to rebuild Europe. And what I wanted to share in that and the way it fits into our story is that we know it as the Marshall Plan, right? And whenever, you know, major initiatives or projects like that would be done under administrations, it would carry the president's name. It should have been the Truman Plan, uh, but Truman didn't want it to carry his name. He didn't care about who got the credit. And there was this incredible quote that came out of that time and the rebuilding of Europe out of World War II and the Marshall Plan, where Truman would go on to say, it's amazing what can be accomplished when you don't care who gets the credit. Isn't that great? Isn't that a lovely quote? quote? And, and I think about today and, and, and our struggles as a nation and, and the political realm, and isn't that an amazing posture to have of what we could accomplish if we don't care who gets the credit? And I, I share that story because it harkens back to Judges 4 and 5 and the leader that we're introduced to today. And actually, the two leaders, Deborah and Barak, who both had a posture of not needing to have the credit or the honor for the victory, just wanting to be faithful to what God asked them to do. And if you're taking notes, Deborah and Barak, who we're introduced to today, are the ruler and the rescuer. And I've entitled the message just that, ruler and rescuer, to remind us of who they really are. When we find ourselves in this third major judge cycle in Judges chapter four, Israel again has forgotten who the Lord is and has been subjugated under an evil king. The king's name is Jabin. And Jabin was the king of the Canaanites, the, the, uh, the king of the, the promised land that God had given uh, to the Israelites. And I just want to stop right there because you might be thinking, well, why are they having to deal with this after they've already come into the promised land? And if you're just catching up in the series, because they were not obedient in chapter one to take possession of the land and to eradicate the inhabitants of the land, namely the Canaanites, generations later, here they are again dealing with the consequences of that choice. And we talked about the fact that when we choose to disobey the Lord, it's our choice, but oftentimes we don't get to choose the consequence for that choice. So when we make a choice to forget the Lord, to act in a way that, that you know, is not in accordance to the knowledge and experience that we have with the Lord, we make that choice. God allows us to have, you know, ri- ri- ridiculous choice and volition in life, but we don't oftentimes get to choose the consequence. And so we're seeing the consequences generations later here of the people having to deal with this evil King Jabin and his subjugation of them. And if you're counting the three major judge cycles, when we first start, it's eight years of slavery. Then in Othniel and Ehud's um, you know, reign and time as judges, it's 18 years of slavery that they're rescuing the people from. This time, look at the scriptures with me, it's 20 years that they're enslaved to Jabin uh, and his, and his uh, oppressors. And it gets worse and worse and worse as we've talked about these cycles. Every single one of them points us to the ultimate righteous judge, Jesus, 
and God's entire redemptive story from start to finish. And as, as these cycles go on and on and they get more and more dark, we see more and more of a need for a righteous king and judge to come and to rescue his people for all time. And this is the same for sure. And just to say on that, just really quickly, and we talk about um, Barak and Deborah, the, the ruler and the rescuer. Deborah is a ruler. Uh, Barak, as the battlefield commander, is the actual rescuer and warrior. And together, they sing this incredible duet. Um, and they, they work so well with each other because they don't need the credit individually. But both of them point us to who Jesus is for us. He is a rescuer and he is a ruler. And I just want to say really quickly before we jump back in the story that many of us meet Jesus for those of you who are Christ followers today, many of us meet Jesus as a rescuer. Um, we're, we're in a place in our life or a circumstance in our life where we come to the understanding that we're, we're broken, that the world is broken, and that left unto ourselves and other people, we're not able to rescue ourselves. And that happens in a variety of different ways where God humbles us and, and breaks us um, so that we come to our, the, our senses and our, our understanding of our need for a rescuer. And we meet Jesus as a, as a rescuer, as a savior. And the one word cry you know, to Jesus as our rescuer is the word help. And we see that repeated in every judge narrative here, that the people of Israel cried out to God for help. They needed to be rescued. They needed to be delivered. And God raised up these imperfect judges to be his mini Christ, his rescuers of God's people. But, but I do want to say that oftentimes we forget that Jesus is also a ruler. Uh, he's a king. And he is ruling and reigning over his creation as the Sabbath king the one who rightly orders all of us. And so for many of us, we find Jesus as a rescuer and we, uh, you know, that might be where our spiritual journey with Jesus stops. You know, we kind of check that box of, I know I'm going to heaven and I've been rescued and uh, I've been saved and, and I'm grateful for that, but I'm, I'm not really following Jesus as a, as, a, as a ruler, as a king. And I just want to point out in this story, we, we see both. Uh, we see Deborah as a, as a ruler, and we'll get into that in just a second, and we see Barak as a rescuer, and they both point to Jesus because he is both. And I'm not sure where you are on your spiritual journey, but as we talk as a church about being a place of helping you know, people, including ourselves, to find Jesus and to follow passionately after him, they're both important, and they both point us to Jesus as rescuer and Jesus as ruler. I'll say it a different way. Jesus as Savior, Right? And, 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 and Jesus is Lord. And for so many people, uh, they meet Jesus again as rescuer, but they, they never come to understand that Jesus has purview and authority over their lives. And so there's all these different compartments of our heart and our life that we don't let Jesus into um, as, as the ruler, as the king. And in fact, culturally, it's a lot less palatable to talk about Jesus as a ruler we want to meet him as a rescuer, but we don't really want to follow him in every area of our life. And Jesus is busy not only saving us on the cross, but inviting us to follow him in every area of our life. All right, let's jump back into the story. Uh, say, uh, Jabin is the evil king, right, of Canaan that is subjugating God's people because they've forgotten the Lord. They've turned their back on him. And he has a military commander, just like Deborah has a military commander, uh, Barak. Jabin has a military commander, if you're following along the story, and his name is Sisera. 
And what you need to know about him is that in verse 3, it reminds us that he has 900 iron chariots. In fact, if you go back and read chapter 1 in Judges, we read about these chariots again. And the power of an iron chariot. This was like the tank or the smart bomb, you know, of, uh, of that time. And so you could have, you know, all kinds of foot soldiers, but if you had iron chariots, that was the great equalizer. And it allowed them to have incredible power over those people. And Sisera, who was, again, uh, the military commander for Jabin, the evil king of the Canaanites, was an awful person. Okay, and I say that with a lot of authority because when you go and read chapter 4 and chapter 5, we read that not only did he, you know, defeat people on the battlefield and, and, and brutally attack people, but the way he subjugated people and, and, and ruled over them was so wicked um, he would take children and, and trade them as, as, as sex slaves. He would uh, rape and pillage. He would do all kinds of horrible things. And they're recorded in the Bible. We know he was uh, an evil, evil person. And that's part of the context of the story where we'll get to today. And out of that wickedness and subjugation and all that evil uh, that was happening to the people of Israel, they cried out to God. Look at verse 3. They cry out to the Lord for help. That, that one word prayer that God longs to hear from every single one of us. And out of that cry for help comes Deborah. Look at verse 4. Deborah was the wife of Lepidoth. She was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. And so we know that she was already speaking on behalf of the Lord. What, is a, what does a prophet do? Let's just stop here in verse 4 as we're introduced to Deborah. A prophet speaks from God to God's people. Right? A priest, remember, uh, speaks for God's people to God. So Deborah was both a judge, she was a deliverer, a redeemer that God raised up. But before she was a, a proper judge, deliverer during this time, she was, she was already a prophet to God's people. She was speaking God's truth to God's people. And look at verses uh, uh, four and five. People would come from all around and they would sit underneath the palm of Deborah. She had her own palm tree that she would sit there and adjudicate the different um, civil cases and problems that the people of God had. And then she would speak to God's people, his word and his truth. And this is important because she's the only judge in the whole judge narrative that is already uh, speaking to God's people and acting on God's behalf even before the people of God cry out for help. And so as the people of God cry out for help, God looks and he finds Deborah who's already serving on his behalf and speaking to people and caring for them and preaching to them and leading them and he raises her up to be a proper judge. Now she's different from all the other judges, right? Because she doesn't lead with a sword in her hand as a battlefield commander. Deborah leads and judges and delivers, because that's what the word judge means, um, as a wise counselor. So she's giving wise counsel, um, she's giving wisdom to people in their difficult situations. She's delegating authority, not caring who gets all the credit for the victory. And so she's guiding people and counseling the people of God and giving, them his, uh, giving the people of God wisdom as they come to her. And Deborah does remind us, if you're taking notes on, on her, that um, Jesus is our wonderful counselor. And that part of how King Jesus rules and reigns and rescues us is with wisdom and with counsel to speak to the difficult places of our life. And that's what Deborah is doing as we find her. And we're reminded that God's leaders come in different uh, shapes and sizes, gifts, personalities, and yes, different genders as well. 
Uh, God uses godly women all throughout the scriptures uh, to advance his kingdom. God uses people, men and women, to lead and share and pray and counsel and serve. And it's worth noting, as we cover Deborah as a judge who is leading Israel during this time, uh, that God created men and women equal and distinct. And he wants to use men and women to advance his kingdom in specific ways. And so uh, Deborah is a judge. She's a ruler rather than a rescuer. Ehud and Othniel, who we've studied so far, are battlefield rescuers. Deborah is, is, is back here delegating and giving wisdom and counsel and speaking on behalf of the Lord as a ruler. And in that way, this is really interesting, Deborah points us to the monarchy to come. Uh, and ultimately to King Jesus, who will rule over his people. Uh, King Jesus will have, remember what Isaiah said, he'll have the government upon where? The government, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, will be upon his shoulders. What does that mean? It means that Jesus will be the king. He'll be the ruler. All the government will be placed upon him. All authority will be placed upon him. Remember the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. That's what Isaiah was talking about. So King Jesus will have the government upon his shoulders as a ruler, not just a cross upon his shoulders as a rescuer. Both are important and both happen and Deborah and Barak remind us of both. And one of the things that's so important again to remember is that Deborah doesn't mind delegating the task of authority to other leaders. Barak and will be introduced to Jael uh, later on who gets an interesting credit in this story as well for victory over Sisera and Jabin. Uh, Deborah is the one who's speaking on behalf of the Lord and ruling and reigning over the people on God's behalf, pointing to the ruler and reigner to come. All right, let's look at uh, Barak as the rescuer. Right, so Deborah is the ruler, Barak is the rescuer in our story. Look at verses 6 through 9. Um, in the story, he's the battlefield commander, and he uh, is summoned by Deborah. Well, what does that mean? He's not summoning Deborah to himself. He's going to Deborah, meaning she's the ruler uh, over Israel during that time. She has the authority. He's the battlefield commander. So, you know, she is Schwarzkopf during that time, you know, if you, if you go back to that. She's coming to the president and asking for direction, understanding, give me, give me the command. And Deborah speaks on behalf of the Lord to, to Barak and says, hey, we're going to go to battle with Sisera and we're going to defeat this guy because he's been subjugating our people and propagating all sorts of wickedness and evil against children and women and uh, enough of this. We're crying out to the Lord for help and here's what God says. God's going to give us victory. Look at verses six through nine. And you're going to call up 10,000 warriors to join you from the tribes of um, Naphtali and Zebulun, who are the northern tribes of, of Israel, where Barak comes from. So you're going to take 10,000 foot soldiers, Deborah says, and you're going to go to war with uh, Sisera, um, uh, who was Jabin's you know, um, army commander. And you're going to meet them on Mount Tabor. And so Sisera uh, hears about this, and he goes to Tabor with his uh, 9,000 iron chariots, remember? And Barak is left going, okay, I'm going to get 10,000 foot soldiers to go and face this, this mighty Sisera and his iron chariots. And this is where Barak, I think, gets a bum rap, if you know this story, um, because he's often seen as someone who doesn't have faith in the word of the Lord that's coming through Deborah, the judge. And he basically says, look at verse 8, he says, I'll go, right? But you got to go with me. Deborah 
If you're telling me that God's gonna give us the victory, I'm gonna take 10,000 foot soldiers and face this incredible army with iron chariots that, that have mowed down all kinds of armies previously. If we're gonna go face these, these seemingly insurmountable odds, you know, you gotta go with me, Deborah, right? And so a lot of people read that and they go, well, uh, Barak as the military commander is kind of, you know, being a chicken. And he doesn't wanna go, you know, without Deborah, you know, with him. But actually, I think what it means when you really study the scripture is Barak is saying, I don't wanna go face this mighty king and his mighty army full of 900 iron chariots without the word of God. In other words, I don't wanna go out on the battlefield and face the giant, right, without God's word and promise being with me. And isn't that a wonderful word for us? That as we face seemingly impossible situations, relationships and circumstances that maybe you're facing today, and you, you sense that the Lord is asking and calling you to go and face them, that you can't do it alone. That it's only through God's promises, it's only through his word, his counsel that he gives to us, that we can stand and face the giants of our life. And so Barak, I think we need to let him off the hook. That he's not just saying, Deborah, you gotta go with me because I'm afraid. I think he's saying, I know, Deborah, that you speak for God. And if you've said we, we're gonna have the victory, I believe that, but you're coming with me because I wanna be reminded of God's promises on the battlefield. And so as you even leave here today and you go into the week and all the things that you're facing in your, maybe your marriage, in a parenting situation, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, whatever that might be for you today that represents the 900 iron chariots that seem insurmountable in your life, just remember the lesson from Barak where he says, I'll go and I'll do it, but I'm taking God's word with me. I'm only gonna go and face that if I take God's promises and I can be reminded of God's promises on the battlefield. And so that's what happens. And Deborah says to him in verse nine, okay, I'm gonna go with you, but just, just remember, you're not gonna get the honor and the credit. And it's not as a punishment for verse eight. It's because there's another character we're gonna be introduced to, another woman named Jael that we'll get to in just a little bit that God's actually gonna use in this crazy way to get the victory. And what this reminds us is that it's, the story is not about one person. It's not about you know, two people. It's not about three people. It's actually not about people at all. The story reminds us that the, the victory always belongs to God. And that it's God who chooses the specific people to, to work through, to rule and to rescue, but ultimately the battle belongs to him and the credit belongs to him. It's amazing what can happen and what can be accomplished when no one needs the credit. And that's what's happening here in the story. So Barak goes to battle against Sisera at Mount Tabor. Uh, Barak faces an opponent that seems to be holding all the aces, right? The 900 iron chariots that, again, would just wipe out foot soldiers, and that's all that Barak has. And let's catch up to the story here in verse 14, if you're following along with me. Then Deborah says to Barak, get ready, get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. And when Barak attacked the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into panic, then Sisera uh, leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy and the army all the way to Harasheth Haragomen, killing all the Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. 
Okay, and then look at verse 17 real quick. Meanwhile, Sisera, one of the things I want to say here is that the only person that escapes death on the battlefield, you know, and you just think in your mind's eye, Sisera's forces is 900 iron chariots, all of his mighty men who are undefeated. Here comes Barak and his 10,000 foot soldiers. It seems like it's going to be a slaughter, but actually God goes before, gives the people of Israel victory, and there's one person that escapes the sword uh, from Barak and his, and his mighty men. Sisera, this wicked commander who uh, leads his people into battle, his 900 iron chariots, he's the only one that survives. And I just want to say that oftentimes bullies, if you have a bully in your life right now, bullies oftentimes at the end of the day sell out everybody else around them. Right? So as a battlefield commander, you never leave your, your men. You never leave your people on the battlefield. And yet he leaves all of them, lets them be slaughtered, and he escapes on foot. And again, he, just like a bully always does, he looks out for number one. And he thinks he's stumbled into greatness because the story goes, uh, it says, meanwhile, Sisera, and this is where the story gets, if it's not already interesting to you, really interesting. Uh, so Sisera's men are defeated. Uh, the, the victory belongs to God. Uh, Barak and his men, you know, are celebrating and pursuing, uh, and they're looking for Sisera. And Sisera, meanwhile, has escaped and fled on foot and finds his way to Jael, who um, is married to, what is his name? It starts with an H, if somebody has it. Heber. Okay, and this is an interesting relationship. Heber is friends with Jabin and Sisera. So Heber is this random character that's married to Jael, and somehow they come and they camp out there by the battlefield. I don't know whether it's just to watch the battle, uh, but they're, they're friends with this, this evil king and Sisera. And so Sisera makes his way to this tent in the latter part of chapter four, and he finds Jael there, and he thinks, I found a friend, this is perfect. So you can give me you know, um, safe passage and you can give me a hiding place here. And in that Middle Eastern culture, no one would have ever entered into the, to the tent of a, of a woman, right? It would, it, that never would have happened. So he thought, this is the perfect place. I'll hide here and uh, Barak and all of his people will pass by and I'll be given safe passage. And so he asked for a, a cup of, of milk and she, she gives him milk and he says, I'm tired, you know, and she lets him you know, sleep in the tent. And it seems like he's going to, you know, escape justice for all of his wickedness. And then, um, and I'm not making this up, you can go read it for yourself. She takes a tent peg as he's sleeping and drives it through his temple into the ground. And in one of the most Captain Obvious passages in the Bible, uh, verse 21, he died. <laughs> yes. So he died. Yes, he did. Um, and you go, man, this is crazy. Well, yeah, I mean, read the Bible, okay? <laughs> the Bible is not rated G, okay? The Bible is full of real people and real stories, okay? And this is one of them, and it's gruesome. And you go, what, what, what is this about? Well, I think it's about a couple things. On the surface, it's, it's really about justice, which is important. And even though JL is not a follower of Yahweh, somehow he uses her um, to enact justice uh, against Sisera, who was a, a wicked, wicked person. And so there's, there's justice that comes um, as, as he's killed in this way. But I think it's deeper than that. 
I think even the manner of his death points us to something else. If we go back again, remember Judges mirrors Genesis in many ways. And after the fall of creation, you know, so we've been looking at Genesis 1 and 2, and, and uh, creation being you know, formed and made and, and resting under the authority of the ruler, the Sabbath king. And then we've been looking at Judges kind of being the undoing of all of that. And in Genesis 3, it's the undoing of God's good creation as the serpent enters into the scene and deceives Adam and Eve and, and, and you know what happens next. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God is giving the consequences for that sin to Adam and to Eve, he says about the serpent that one day there's a ruler, there's a Messiah, there's a king that is coming and God is going to crush the serpent's head you know, with the very foot of that Messiah King. Do you remember that? And so Sisera, I think the deeper meaning, he's a representative of the serpent. And so when we see his head literally being crushed, it takes us back to the narrative of Genesis and creation and the serpent himself being crushed. And even his name Sisera, when you hear that name Sisera, it's a hiss. It's like the hiss of a serpent. And so even right here in the middle of Judges, uh, we see God's full redemptive plan. That one day the righteous judge, Jesus, the king, is going to crush the head of the serpent and crush evil and bring justice. And so we just get a little uh, narrative of that here through this amazing, crazy story of Jael and the tent peg and Sisera and the deeper meaning is pointing us back to Genesis 3 and the work of God through Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And then all of this ends. So God gives the victory to his people. There's 40 years of, of peace that come through Deborah as the ruler and Barak as the rescuer. And together, again, this dynamic duo, they show us the characteristic of Jesus as both rescuer and ruler together in this beautiful way. And God gives peace to his people for 40 years. But it doesn't stop there, all right? I'm going to finish with chapter 5. Because remember, Judges 4 and Judges 5 are talking about the very same event that we've just talked about, but from different perspectives. There's the historical narrative that we've just walked through, but then there's the poetry. There's the song. And I can say confidently that Deborah and Barak are the only judge duo that we see in the scriptures that sing a duet together. Right? And so after God gives them the victory, and it's his victory, not theirs. Remember, it's not about who gets the credit. Um, they both sing this song together, uh, this song of joy and gratitude and thanksgiving that's captured for us in Judges chapter 5. And it's this beautiful moment of joy where they sing to the Lord as their deliverer. And we're reminded that God is the one who delivers his people as they cry out for help. And the same is true for us. But there's more. Okay, this is the amazing thing about God's word as one redemptive story from start to finish. Because Judges 4 and 5 actually point us back to Exodus 14 and 15. And in Exodus 14 and 15, we see God delivering, rescuing his people through Moses from Egypt and from the evil subjugation that they had to the Egyptians. And this is amazing as God brings his people out of Egypt. Remember, Pharaoh is chasing the people of God with his what? With his chariots. And God crushes them with the Red Sea. And in this narrative, we see uh, 
these evil um, people, Jabin and Sisera and their, their army, chasing God's people, battling with God's people with these 900 chariots. And now we're at the, the Kishon River that God uses to envelop um, the people, the Canaanites, the evil army and all the chariots and to crush them. And then guess what happens? And Exodus 15 is the very first song that's recorded in the Bible. Did you know that? Where Moses leads this congregational song of God's people after the deliverance that God gives to them and crushing the Egyptians. And guess what Barak and Deborah do after they see God deliver them in a supernatural way. They sing this song of deliverance and thanksgiving in Judges chapter 5. And it reminds us of God's redemptive story, the one story of God that is all connected throughout the scriptures. Deborah and Barak, right? They're, they're quite this combination as ruler and rescuer. But their story, as with every biblical story, points us to something more. It points us to a ruler king, a judge who is coming, who will never die, who will defeat evil and death for all time. Deborah and Barak, what I want you to remember about them in the days and the years to come as you think back on Judges, Deborah and Barak in Judges 4 and 5 point us to Jesus. Jesus, who is our ruler and our rescuer. To him alone be the glory today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread with his disciples as he often did, and they shared a meal together. That night was a busy night for Jesus. He gave a new commandment that his disciples love one another. And he said, all the world will know that you're my followers if you love one another. He took a towel and a basin that same night and washed his disciples' feet. And he said, don't you see I'm giving you an example of what it means to, to be a servant leader and for that to be your offering to all of the world. And then he did take bread as they often did at a table together. And looking them in the eye, he said, you know, this bread is more than just bread. It actually represents something. It represents my body that's going to be given for you. And so he gave thanks for it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for each of you. And then likewise, he took a cup and he shared um, the meal with them and the wine with them. And he said, you know, this cup represents more than just a cup and wine and, and bread. It represents a new covenant. The word covenant means promise, a new promise that I'm making with each of you. And the promise is this, that if you'll give me your life, Jesus said, I'll give you my life. Right? And Jesus said, as often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim my sacrifice you proclaim that my grace is sufficient for you. You proclaim that I am both a rescuer on the cross and a ruler from the throne, right? It was Jesus as rescuer that invites us to the table, that gives us access to the table through his blood shed on the cross, through his body given for us. The perfect sacrifice were invited to the table, but don't miss this. The table itself, this ancient table, is the table of the king. And you're invited to sit at the king's table. He is the ruler. He reigns over all of his creation. And the table that we celebrate in the kingdom with him 
is a kingdom celebration for a king who has not only come, but a king who reigns. And so today we celebrate Jesus as rescuer, but we also celebrate him through the table as ruler. And so I wanna invite you over the next few moments just to prepare your heart to come to this table. The scriptures remind us that we should come before the Lord and confess any sin that we might bring into the room this morning, whether we know it or we don't know it, that we go before the Lord and ask the Lord to purify our hearts. If there's anything that you need to, to say to the Lord before you come to the table, that you would do that. And then in just a few moments, we'll come forward by row together. And I just wanna encourage you as you come forward, um, you know, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so grateful that you're here. And I wanna encourage you to keep coming, um, to ask questions and to be here and to listen to God's word and to invite the Lord to speak to you about who he really is as rescuer and as ruler. Uh, but I do wanna invite you to not take the table today because the table is specifically for people who are followers of Jesus. But I wanna invite you to, to come forward and so if that's you today, you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you're in a place just spiritually, you'd say, I'm not prepared or ready to take communion. I just want you to cross your arms when you come forward. And several of our leaders will be up here serving. And they just want to speak a word of grace and blessing over you today. And that's important for us. When you come forward, you're going to get a little piece of bread. They're all gluten-free, by the way. And you can uh, just dip it in the cup, okay? That's how we celebrate communion here. There's not one prescribed way in the scriptures to take communion. Uh, for us at New City, we, we, we use what's called intinction, which is a fancy word of saying we're just dipping into the cup. And so I've said it before, I'll say it again. You know, if you lose your bread in the cup, you just leave it there. You don't need to go after it. Um, if you try to grab the cup from one of us, we're not going to let you take the cup uh, and drink from it. I know that's some of your traditions growing up, but you're just going to take the bread and dip it in the cup and then just receive the elements. And I'm going to invite you to back, go back to your seat and just use the time that you have to pray. Um, and just ask God to, to work in your life. If there's something that you need to pray for, the Holy Spirit's prompting you to pray for, just take the time that we have here and do so together. All right, let's prepare our hearts before we come to the table today. Let's pray. Creating us a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence, O oh Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from us. But instead, today, even in this moment as we come to the table, restore unto us the joy of our salvation, the joy of being rescued, and renew a right spirit within us. This is the table of God for you, the people of God. And I invite you now to come forward by row and partake of it.
sing that one more time. Thank you so much for being with us today for worship. I'm grateful to have each and every one of you and want to invite you back. Next week, we'll be in Judges chapter 6. There's a guide at the doors. If you haven't gotten one yet and you want to read ahead, I invite you to do that. And we'll be talking about the wonderful story of Gideon uh, beginning next week. So please join us as we'll continue in our series together. If you're looking to get connected here, the easiest way to do that at New City is to get a connection point right out in the courtyard. It's a beautiful day and we have teammates waiting to greet you. We have a gift for you if you're visiting with us. We'd love to help you get further connected here on a team or into a group. Also prayer, we'd love to connect with you um, through prayer. So there's a card in your seat backs right in front of you that you can fill out and drop in one of the green boxes at the doors on the way out with a prayer request, or you can go online, newcity.us prayer. Let us know how we can be praying for you this week. We'd love to be able to do that. Uh, our offering, our, our giving is a part of worship at New City. We see it as a response to what God has done. So if this is your church home, this is a, a time for you to give and worship, and you can do that at the green boxes as you leave today. Um, or online, newcity.us give. If you're visiting with us, please don't feel obligated to give. Uh, we'd love it for this uh, service to be our gift to you. We're really grateful that you're here. And final thing, um, we are collecting uh, for Hurricane Ian relief and we're partnering with the Samaritan's Purse to do that. And so if you're interested in, in uh, giving a gift of, above and beyond your offering, um, we're gonna email instructions today about how to do that. But here's the link. And you can go and just uh, hit the drop down for hurricane relief and, and give to Samaritan's Purse. And all that money will go out the door um, to help those in need. And in fact, as we have our benediction today, uh, let's receive it for ourselves, but also use it as a prayer for those who are hurting and, and suffering in our world today. Would you extend your hands for this blessing as you go? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon each and every one of you. May the Lord be gracious unto you and lift up his countenance upon you. And may the Lord today and all throughout this week fill you with his peace, his grace, and his love. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen, amen. Love you, New City. Thank you for being here.